I bend over the book and begin to utter the words softly. And as I read, the very air changes. The candle flames heighten, then almost flicker out. These songs sit dust-like on the lips of a long memoried people, waiting to be sung in distant vibrato everywhere. Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, a podcast where we get lost in the deep dark forest and absolutely refuse to ask for directions. We've assembled some of the finest poets the UK has to offer and asked them to rewrite the myths, legends and fairy stories they want to pass down the generations, stories they want to preserve for whatever future comes next. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, and I'm thrilled to welcome our guests today, Mona Arshi and Amara Amaya. Hi, guys. Hi, Eleanor. Hey, yeah. Mona Arshi was born in West London to Punjabi parents. She worked as a human rights lawyer at Liberty before she started writing poetry, and her debut collection, Small Hands, won the Forward Prize for Best First Collection in 2015. Her second collection, Dear Big Gods, was published in April 2019, and both were published by Liverpool University Press's Pavilion Poetry List. She's judged both the Forward Prize and the T.S. Eliot Prize, and she's recently been appointed Honorary Professor at the University of Liverpool. Mona is currently poet-in-residence at Norfolk Wildlife Trust in Clyde Marshes, and her debut novel, Somebody Loves You, is due to be published in 2021 by And Other Stories. Amara Amaya is a poet and travel writer of Jamaican descent. Her writing is interested in generational traditions, voice, spirit, and black womanhood. Her poetry has been published in Under the Radar magazine, Poetry Birmingham Literary Journal, the Hippodrome Young Poets Anthology, and translated in Colombian publication Arcadia. Amara has read her poetry nationally and internationally, and her debut collection, The Opposite of an Exodus, has just been published with Bad Betty Press. First up, we have Mona. What story have you chosen to rewrite for us? So um, I've gone to the Arabian Nights, and it's Sherazade's story, really, that I'm rewriting. So could you give us a little bit of a rundown of what happens in Sherazade's story? in the traditional tellings. It's really, the story is, is from the Arabian Nights and the story begins by the female protagonist, Sherazade, who tells the emperor these stories every night for a thousand and one nights. And what she does is she frees all the, all the other women that might be murdered by the emperor. And actually what's so interesting about the story is the fact that there is a lone woman that sort of takes on this kind of um, unassailable emperor um, with her voice. And so it, it's a story that when I was young, I was really attracted to. And it's a story that's sort of been part of my culture, although it sort of arrived really from the Middle East. It sort of travelled to South Asia and therefore to me as well. So it's, it's a story that's really been a fabric of my kind of upbringing. That's beautiful. I can't wait. Take it away. The story of Layla the one before Sherazade, the road. Every road has a pair of ears. This is the story of the road. My sole occupation is to dutifully record. I pass no judgment. I make copious notes. I am all surface. I know I am very low in the order of things. I lack the mountain's foresight and the river's dervish nature but I have the road's open curiosity. Since the day I was built, the 
The trees cleared for my long, sinuous body, roots upended, humble in body, modest in design. This is the story of a road on a day with the wheels of the carriage pressed down, the hooves of the king's horses kicking up the dust. I carry a girl. This is her story too, or will be soon enough. She is dressed as a bride. She has no baggage. What luggage could an emperor's bride need? Her mother has toiled with her curls. It's braided tightly into one long rope to give her a faintly astonished air. A few months ago, I carried her sister, Samira. In her hands was a small amulet of silver jade. It's been a long journey. This girl has stepped through most of it. The carriage windows are cloaked with long bands of muslin to keep the dust at bay. Sometimes the girl sways off to sleep. Her two attendants do not sleep. They watch the girl intently, careful as cats. They don't take their eyes off this girl, even when she is asleep. There is something wild about these women with their penetrating gaze, a hungry desire. I confess I can smell them from here. Every road has a pair of ears as sharp as the kiss of a sword of the, or the mouth of an axe that we shall get to such matters later. Because, dear reader, this is where I end. We have arrived. I have conveyed these goods safely to the palace gates. The guards will avert their eyes and refrain from looking at her small feet as she steps out of the carriage. These men know better than to raise up their eyes. Only the lean moon is out tonight, and she watches like a sick and passive mother holding her breath. The girl. My first act, an unlucky one, to trip into the house of my would-be husband emperor. Oops, says an attendant, steadying me. This doesn't bode well. She pushes sharp fingers into the flesh of my arm. The dreams in the carriage had poked at me like sharp sticks. Wake up, Layla, wake up. A flurry of dark shapes settling to wide open mouths and teeth. The palace stinks, this palace of flies. Hazel-eyed house cats skulk around the hallways. I'm led to my own set of rooms and past the courtyard. It's lined with large blooms, purples, fuchsias, their overpowering scent. So this is where the girls are taken in the morning after they have been used up by the emperor. I'm pushed into the chamber, stripped for my bath. I'm standing naked in the cool air of the room inspected, the unlucky one, the girl that tripped into the house, the girl with a birthmark near her navel, the rough shape of a certain long leaf or even a tear, the women can't agree. Afterwards I walk over to a gigantic tapestry animating the wall. As I draw closer still I notice it's moving, populated by an army of coloured moss feeding on its surface. I touch one and its pink powder coats the tip of my finger. As the night comes in, more ladies arrive. I have been perfumed, painted and scented. They pour over my body and warn me to never ever show my teeth to the emperor. He might feed my tongue to the cats. One of the ladies brings me a vial. We are not pitiless. Drink this. It's a rare herb. You will feel less when the time comes. It will release you. She strokes my hair. Then I am alone again. I practice my smile in the mirror and bring the vial closer to my lips. 
Don't you dare drink that, sister. I hear a trapped voice. I jump up and in the florid centre of the hanging tapestry is a tiny jar nestled amongst the winged creatures. I reach and lift off the top and there sits a small, plump tongue. I almost drop the jar. What were you expecting? Fried dainties in a gilded cup? This is a palace of death and you must not drink from the vial. Listen to me, Layla. Listen, I will direct you. I knew that voice, the tongue of my sister speaks. I am trembling but summon up the courage to say, Dear sister, let me look for the other parts of you first. I might be able to collect them. And I begin to search purposely under the bed, shedding tears at the same time as I sweep my little hands into the corners of the room and then quickly open up all the trinket boxes and jars lining the shelves, trying desperately to find one more scrap or fragment of the body of my sister. My older sister is laughing gently. There, there, Layla. Don't waste your time. Don't weep for things that can't be undone. We have a job to do now. Go open the door and carry me outside. I am light-footed and quiet as a moth as I remove my slippers and walk swiftly towards a narrow passageway, a place where even the cats refuse to follow. It's the older part of the palace, the walls thick and cool as tombs, all the while my sister consoles and directs until we reach a wide Almira cupboard which looks so familiar. I pull open the drawer and hundreds of tongues spill onto the floor. They are jabbering excitedly as I lift out an ancient book. Samira dances through it, flicking the pages till she finds what she needs in the belly of the book. The tongues gather. Read the curse! Read the curse! they cry. I bend over the book and begin to utter the words softly. And as I read, the very air changes. The candle flames heighten, then almost flicker out. Sister, you need to be louder, or the curse won't hold, says Samira. Emperor, violator of ancient laws and rites, emperor of death blight, may you quail when you rise and shriek in your dreams. May there be broken trees on the mountains, picked clean like death. Let the diathenus that grows withhold its scent. May the living ignore your petitions and your desires. May your oxen birth awkwardly. May the sandalless dead follow you. May a burr seed lodge and disturb your eye. May you weep for six decades and a day. May the gods refuse you entrance at death gates. May no benevolent hand ever reach you. May you be cursed emperor, false husband to countless wives, by the thin skin of their infant fontanelles, the pale soles of their departed feet. May you breathe forever into the crib of darkness. I stop. All I can hear now is my own soft breathing. The chorus of tongues are lying like exhausted petals around me. The bones of the palace are shaking. And all the notes of the dead girls begin to fall upon my ears like heavy drops of rain. That was absolutely beautiful. Thank you for that. So I'm so interested by what you said just before about how this story really attracted you when you were a young child. I was wondering if you could tell me what it was about this story that was so appealing. I guess it's um, the ultimate fairy tale for me. I'm, I mean, I'm, I, I love fairy tales. I'm fascinated by them. But I guess 
what attracted me most to fairy tales and this in particular is that they they sort of reek of female suffering and I mean I think Marina Warner calls them the domain of pain and it feels as if those those fairy tales those fables exist because they had to be told by women because women writing them their their real circumstances were so so dark and terrible and so this was a way of being able to share those stories and there was a power in that as well that I think is is really incredible I mean in terms of going back to the the story of Arabian Nights I I wanted to go back to it but I also wanted to keep some of that sort of ancient fabric intact and I wanted to play with that so it was almost like having broken pieces of lace and and sort of wanting to to stay in that story um and so you can almost smell that time that felt really important to me and it also gave me a lot of freedom because it felt like I'd put sort of four stakes in the ground and that that was my terrain and that was what, what I was going to work and the other thing I really thought was important was that I wanted to keep this idea of enchantment um, those sort of tropes that we have in the original stories, uh, you know, of, of um, the mundane being enchanted, uh, the domestic being enchanted, which is what of, very often what um, women telling these stories uh, would have been privy to. And that felt really important. So um, the idea of having the road have a voice and having disembodied the girl the sister also in the story. And what I didn't want, actually, is I didn't want to have the emperor in the story. I wanted to give those girls that had come before Sherazade, the ones that had been murdered by this emperor, to have agency. And so he doesn't figure in the story at all um, in a very purposeful, deliberate way. So both of your works kind of engage with that power of storytelling, uh, especially when you're in a position of being depowered, in a position of resistance. And that's why I was really struck by the image of the tongues. Can you tell me more about them? Uh, I think that was a really deliberate statement, actually, to bring in the tongue, because it's right what you say. I mean, telling stories, is it's a way of resisting erasure and it's a way of centering voice, trying to work out wh- what's not been told, how to voice the stuff that's not been told. And, and in a poem, anyway, where you are working into the ineffable, you know, the things that can't be put into any other text. I think it's just a really kind of useful kind of terrain to be able to excavate some of these ideas. Amara, would you share that kind of approach to storytelling? Yeah, I think um, a lot, similar to you, um, Mona, I think a lot of the ways that I approach poetry is through kind of this piecing together and this, I guess, collage-like approach to how we can bring stories in and how to lay a voice and how to create a space where people who are considered voiceless or inanimate like I really with Mona's poem I really loved the idea of the road having a voice and the tongues kind of not just existing as they are and not wanting to be attached to the rest of the bodies and how we can kind of create a narrative base of that so that really did resonate with me and I think in my poem I touch on that inanimate kind of spiritual power as well talking of giving voice to the voiceless I'm so curious as to this figure of Layla could you tell me a little bit more about her so she's a a made-up figure out of the original story I wanted to think about the girls that had 
died, had been murdered, had been actually raped and and then murdered in the morning by the emperor. And and that's something that always struck me when I was reading this the original story when I was when I was a little girl is that actually where are the names of those girls? Where are they? You know, where where do they figure in this? And so I I, I wanted to give her a name and it was a name that I just sort of decided really fit her and then I wanted to also name the dead sister, her sister too, who feels really a real part of the narrative poem, who brings her to this curse, who really leads her to that curse, which is evoked at the end, which is um, a really important part, I think, of the poem, because curses are really important because they are part of what a lot of women had. They had nothing else, but they might have had curses or spells. And, and actually, curses are really important because... They have to be uttered into the air. So there's a sort of ritualistic kind of idea of how they are, how they are uttered. And I felt that the story, the, the poem needed to end with the curse because curses are enacted. It's a real form of agency and action. The poem is obviously quite open-ended and we don't know what happens. And I wanted to make sure that we had a poem that was sort of true to the story in terms of, you know, there there was a real darkness and there was real brutality in those times. And so I didn't want to tie it up and have the sort of the clasp closed. I wanted to leave it open. But it's very clear that once the curse itself is enacted, terrible things are going to happen to the emperor. I hope I hope that's the impression that the reader gets. <laughs> and that feels like an auspicious moment to pass over to Amara. I was wondering what story you've chosen yes um i chose to focus on queen nanny of the maroons who is a very real figure and is not mythical at all um but there is something about the way um that nanny is spoken about so mm -hmm. nanny is a warrior she united and led the Mar windward maroons across jamaica during the 18th century roughly um and kind of was very heavy on rebellion and resistance and liberty. But a lot of what we know about Nanny is through kind of this folk, like oral history kind of situation. There are some historians who do write about Nanny and obviously Nanny is recognized as a national hero and is very prominent in Jamaica and respected um, across the Caribbean. But I think beyond that, a lot of what we know about Nanny is almost mystical, um, legendary. So I wanted to tap into that a little bit with my poem. Windward Rebel Songs for Nanny. Songs dub and torn together, bowled out from the edge of an island, flung from young and old, these songs sit dust-like on the lips of a long-memoried people, waiting to be sung in distant vibrato everywhere, tattooed on the toughest land everywhere. These are reminiscent of the one named Nanny and are very true. All the river water flings itself upstream, foaming and spilling and reaching Blue Mountain Hillside. Everything rushes to see red coats. Black boot boys come steady up the hill with no path. Nanny waits, soundless, squinting, so to see her heavy pot still boils, without fire, the herbs enchant so well together. The smoke does burn and not a thing born by river would stop to peer or pray. But these come so well equipped and must look and conquer and fall inside and dead. 
and I never see a pop boil with that as much as a flame yet. Portland, Jamaica. Deep in the jungle where the cicadas sing a ceremonious warning and trees scrape at river spirit who don't like stranger and the ocean is bone ridden and the feel of damp wood on foot bottom is aragonite through nerve ending and rain is dragged down from overripe cloud and beats down and beats down, down and it never stops. Deep in there is where Nanny rises to greet the land to say, Good morning. How are you today? What do you have hidden for me? Branches bang themselves against the hollow belly of bark. Runaway leaves flutter from mahogany tree. The soil scrapes itself to uncover what it hid. Sweet mangoes, skin split and yellowed. Unruly wind travels softer, peels new trees aside so Nanny can carry home offering in endless arms. I grind pimiento seeds, scrape nutmeg, mix in pepper, turmeric, cinnamon, chop ginger, tear moringa leaf, pour water and stir, summoning burning hurricane. More. Quietly, she commands me. I add boiling water until it reaches the brim. More, more. I add a little and I drop more until it overflows, but it never spills. Come see how to cut a road through bush. Carry language through drum. Make indiscreet pilgrimage to new home, to hilltop, to burn up. Plantation, set up village, dig up deep hole to rig up boo-boo trap, caliban, fly up, tug on tree and stick and stone and favour of the land to the fullest, to never die in battle, to take back untamed ground and so to fight, to survive, to catch bullet in the tail of the defeated, to find the maroon family is too numerous. To forgive the story scraped of their gut, hushed in the parched palm of riverbed. February 13, 1737. Belly empty, like rock carved out at Stony River, Nanny and her familiar kin clap to tired chants, jerk away hunger, and the earth beneath them kisses their weakened souls to apologize. The last of the dried leaves are burned to call on guidance. Spirit language speaks stern against surrender. And another one of Nanny's women beg for cold water just to feed a weary child. Nanny prepares to surrender to redcoats. But spirit language hooks fingertips under cheekbone to hold face close, ass in low tone. One more day. Before the sun lifts up, Nanny wakes to three pumpkin seeds in her pocket. Her tied cloth falls from her as she scatters herself to plant them. Naked knees needing barrenness. No rain graces the land, and yet, in less than a week, ripe pumpkins grow. You see? Spirit language asks. And how is my daughter, Eastern Wind? She's kept well, 
The land spoils her and has vowed to protect her. Does she remember me? Always. The psalmists of the night wake her with your name. She whispers it to herself, teaches it to others. Will she ever come home? She cannot. The island needs her. She has become its mother now. Who then is mother to her? All of us. We weave together wood, water, fire, earth, air. Cleanse every breath before she breathes. Instruct spirit to be kinder than she once was. Medase, eastern wind, for holding her. You are welcome. How else may the secret be kept if not inscribed in the folds of our wind? How else? I follow Nani to river. Today she washes her locks, chanting a song moist on her lips, bearing her back to the sun, floating. She calls me in, grips my hand until it turns liquid, asks me whose daughter I am, breathes out, oh, when I tell her and stares. The waters around her ripple, the abeng slow moan rinses the sky of its sound, cuts its own path down the mountain fast. She curses unspoken, words steaming the water. I close my eyes and feel blade place warm in my palm. We walk uphill, coarse breaths quieting us, hair dripping dry down backs. Nanny enters, pressing leaves against abdominals, branches wrap around beating limbs, barefoot and silent. Nanny covers men in ointment and blesses battle, breathes out and hides me, chest strumming with hers. Thank you. What a gorgeous reading. Thank you. You paint Nanny of the Maroons so vividly and so powerfully. What does she mean to you? And like, what should modern readers, listeners make of her? So Nanny, or Queen Nanny of the Maroons, um, as she's referred to sometimes, is somebody who's always interested me because I think as someone who is not born in Jamaica, has distance from Jamaica, whose parents are not even born in Jamaica. I think a lot of what I know and understand and kind of relate to with Jamaica is it always has this this distance, Nani included. So I think for me, a lot of what I know of Nani is about resistance and her warrior-like personality and success, I think, is a huge part of what I know of Nani. But there's a lot of spirituality. There's a lot of the supernatural. There's a lot of healing. Nani was a herbalist. Some of the stories I make reference to in this poem, are they're all very scattered. So there are a few moments like the pumpkin seeds, which Nanny woke up to and found and planted and had food. That's like the provider aspect of Nanny's personality. And then there's the, um, Nanny is sometimes referred to as an obeyer woman as well. And I think the first section of the poem with the, the heavy pot that boils without a fire is a story that I find so interesting, but it said that's what happened at the foot of the mountains that, um, you know, the British would find like a pot and they would see that it was burning with no fire and be confused by it. But Nanny would know 
and the Maroons would kind of just understand that that's kind of how it went. Um, and there's so much, so many of those stories that are surrounding Nanny that they kind of point to something else, you know, something beyond just the hero, the hero and the warrior. But yeah, the herbalist and the person who understood the land and who could have a really deep relationship with the land, especially the eastern part of the island, Portland, which is where the Windward Maroons were. Um, it's a really volatile environment. Like the oceans are, you cannot swim in them. Like it's really a really destructive kind of part of the island. It's really wild and untamed. And yet this is where Nanny found refuge and was able to set up home and the land was able to work with her for success. So that is the aspect that most inspires me, I think. That so reminds me of a line that really stood out to me, which is the, will she ever come home? What were you thinking of there? Um, So a lot of what we know of Nanny is, again, not massively confirmed, but it is said that she was originally from Ghana, specifically um, from the, some people say the Ashanti tribe, but other people say the Akan people. But um, I've always imagined what kind of a relationship you know, Nanny being the mother of Jamaica, but not even being from Jamaica, having left her own mother and her own land, um, I kind of wanted to tap into that, another part of the story. And I never really hear much about, you know, that kind of relationship that Nanny might have had with Ghana. And that maybe is because we don't know. So I wanted to reimagine what that looked like. So, um, yeah, I wanted to recreate an imagined conversation between the wind in Portland and who I imagine is Nanny's mum. What was it like writing to into that space of uncertainty that's created where history meets legend, meets the kind of histories that we can patch together where we don't necessarily have great archives or where those histories have been actively repressed? There's, there's a line and a boundary, isn't there, between like respecting the fact that this is a real person and this is history, as you said, but there's also the rest of it, which is very, I think, mystical and magical, not necessarily mythical, but legendary. And I think, um, yeah, a lot of the process was about finding a way to honour the person and the history and the island, but also being able to tap into some of those supernatural things. Um, and I think it kind of, again, relates back to what Mona was saying about the voiceless. I think a lot of the nature I wanted to give voice to, to kind of therefore give voice to Nanny's, I guess, other side of her personality, the side of what it looks like when she's just washing her hair or making tea um, and how her success and her heroism comes into that realm too. Yeah. That does remind me of what you were saying, Mona, about um, how the realm of the mythic can kind of dignify that feminine space. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, it was so interesting because... Whilst I was listening to Amara tell the story, I kept thinking not only is it important to have uh, restoring some of the stories uh, of women and also making sure that those invisibilized stories are restored and given voice. But I also think it matters who tells those stories as well, because Amara's story is it's more than just a telling of something simple. It really she really complicates her character and I actually think she gives her a soul. And um, and I think it was it was interesting because we were doing very different things, even though we were sort of doing the same thing in terms of trying to give voice. We were in different spaces because I was dealing with a given story that is an ancient story, thousands of years old. 
And actually, Amara was bringing, mythologizing something. So we kind of had both had different challenges. But I was very, very struck by the fact that only not only do you have the, the person evoked, but there is all those complications regarding her and her character and her everyday life, which I thought was really important, which is sort of ennobled her, which I thought was really wonderful. Oh, thank you. I think I really liked what you said as well about that mythologizing aspect. I think what we've both done is ensure, I think when you mythologize something, you kind of ensure that it has that immortality and it kind of exists in a way that can continue to speak um, even beyond history. So yeah, I definitely think even though we had different challenges, the goal was definitely there to kind of ensure that these stories are told and in a way that can yeah, kind of outlive the originals, like, well, not the originals, but the original sentiment and give it renewed life in different ways and in different lights. I agree. And, and I think given also the fact that when we think about fairy tales and fables and how they were often passed on by women, you know, they were sort of passed on through the mouth of a woman, often a mother to a child, and they were passed on like that. And actually how that's, that's their power. That's how they accreted their power. And then to, to now be able to have those forms actually to sort of bring them out actually and, and have them as permanent forms I think is really important well what a beautiful moment to have to end it on I could talk for a thousand one nights uh with you guys about all this stuff but sadly tragically we will have to uh leave it there thank you so much to both of you Mona Arshi and Amara Amaya uh for taking us on a wonderful journey through blue mountains and stinking palaces and all that good stuff this has been bedtime stories for the end of the world i've been your host eleanor penny and until next time sweet dreams and thanks for listening this has been bedtime stories for the end of the world our project producer is tom mcandrew and our podcast producer is maya bosworth this project is funded by Arts Council England and supported by the good folks at Spread the Word. We have a book out also entitled Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. It's illustrated by the artist Inquisitive and published by Studio Press. To get your copy, you can go to our website, endoftheworldpodcast.com. There you can also explore all our previous episodes and find out more about our writers and their stories. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Goodbye World Pod.